have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like you to open to John's first letter, 1 John, almost to the end of the Bible, just before Revelation, 1 John and chapter 2 is where we're going to begin. We've been talking about what the Bible says about how to know for sure that you have eternal life. And um, there are two passages of Scripture that deal very specifically with this question. One of them, Second uh, Corinthians 13:5, is kind of our overarching uh, theme verse, where Paul says, "Test yourselves." I mean, that's about as plain as you can make it. Test yourselves. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? And he writes that to a church that uh, is in trouble, a church that has all kinds of problems in multiple directions. And uh, many of the people there are sinning in, in a variety of ways. And they're furthermore not even listening to Paul's counsel or guidance, that they're rejecting his helpfulness to them. To the point that it makes Paul begin to wonder, is this church, are there unbelievers in this church, sown among the believers? And as I pointed out a couple of times, and I emphasize again this morning, These are not tests that you can apply to other people. You have to apply it to yourself. But there's still the obvious thing, you know, going on. If a person's living in open, obvious sin, as was the case in several people at Corinth, Paul says, I'm starting to wonder about you. So test yourself and see if you meet the criteria as one who really knows the living God and has eternal life abiding in them. The other passage of Scripture is John's first letter. Now, John is similarly writing to a church that has trouble. He's writing about 40 years later. This is toward the end of the first century. John is an old man. He's in his 90s. He's writing back to the church at Ephesus. And as he writes this letter, the same kinds of questions arise. There have been false teachers at Ephesus. Some people have been led astray. Some people have left the church and gone to other religions or started their own kind of groups. Uh, There are those kinds of difficulties. And John is writing to that group of people. And as he writes this letter, his first letter... He outlines the characteristic qualities of a Christian. And as he comes to the end of this in chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, he summarizes it and, and gives away his purpose. He said, he that has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. 
So he says, my purpose in writing has been so you can know that you have eternal life. I want you to know that. I want you to be able in your heart to be assured before God that you have a relationship with him based on evidence that you can discover by allowing the Holy Spirit to examine you and testing to see if certain things are true. And John, I think, gives us three highlights. We already looked at one of them, uh, and that's the, the test of love. Do we love the brothers? Do we love God? Do we love one another? Is love present in our lives? The other test that he gives we find beginning in chapter 2, verse 3, and it has to do with the question of sinning. In 1 John 3, or 2, verse 3, he says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked or as Jesus walked. Now, verse 5 highlights something. If you don't write in your Bibles, I at least want you to write in your mind. Underscore this in your mind. That whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Everything that I am going to say this morning about this test of obedience or righteousness is based upon a motivation of love for Jesus Christ. Some people get the cart before the horse. They try to keep the rules in order to earn favor with God. It simply doesn't work that way. It's exactly the opposite. If we have a relationship with God, based upon repentance of sin and trusting Christ as our Savior, then as a consequence of that genuine relationship in which the Holy Spirit is alive in our hearts, we love Him. And out of that love flows a desire to follow him and to be obedient to him. I've been reading a, a book that was uh, kind of compiled by John Stott. Um, and it's about uh, godliness, kind of the pursuit of the Christian life in Puritan life. Some of you may be familiar with the Puritans, but they were back in the uh, 17th century um, just kind of leading into Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening and all of that, for those of you that uh, are familiar with church history in the West. And um, as a consequence, um, they were a group of uh, preachers and teachers and, and people who lived very serious Christian lives. And John Owen uh, was kind of preeminent among them as a theologian and a writer and a preacher, and he wrote a great deal about the subject of sin. And I've been reading uh, his 
his writings along those lines. Very uh, laborious and, and tedious. They were not known for short sentences. 200 words would be probably an average sentence. They, they had these long convoluted arguments. But anyway, I've been reading John Owen on that. And, and we tend to think, if you know anything about the Puritans, the kind of the classic example that comes to mind is a very stern-faced person who never has any fun and never feels anything. They're just very kind of stodgy in life and you know, you just uh, keep a stiff upper lip and whatever. That's kind of the image we've got. I don't think that was actually the case, but that's the impression. But I've been reading Owens on his view of sin, and it certainly looks a lot like that. He's very somber. He's very uh, serious about mortifying the flesh and dealing with our sin nature and, and, and seeing how vile and wicked we really are in the face of a holy God. And he goes on at great length about that. And then he turns this amazing corner. And he says, when we see how sinful we are and see Jesus on the cross, shedding his blood, giving his life to pay for that sin out of love for us so that we can come back to a relationship with God. He says it stirs the affections. That's what the Puritans called the emotions. He says it stirs the affections to love him all the more. In other words, to see Christ bearing my sin on the cross motivates me to love Him because He has paid my price. He has taken the penalty. I have a relationship with God because Jesus paid it all. And I am free and clear at the bar of God's justice. Jesus has borne my sin. That's amazing. That's amazing. And John makes it clear, and Paul makes it clear in Romans, I want to touch there in a moment, that it is love that motivates us. It is not the other way around. In fact, John goes so far as to say, perfect love casts out fear. We do not obey godliness and righteousness because we're afraid. I mean, if you're outside of the grace of God, fear is a very good thing. It is a terrible thing to fall, uh, for a sinner to fall in the hands of a holy and angry God. So, so fear is a, is a good thing. But if you're in Christ, perfect love casts out fear. We don't obey out of fear. We don't obey out of a sense of judgment. We obey out of a heart of love in response to the gospel. And, and there's a huge difference there. So Paul says in Romans 8.14, I've written that in your study guide this morning, those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The real test here is, is the Holy Spirit in my life so that I am being motivated toward Christ-like behavior. 
is the, the godliness, the goodness that is coming out of me, motivated by the Spirit of God who's in my life and driven by my love for the Lord. The one who's led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So the Holy Spirit in my life becomes an internal guide to what is right. And the empowerment to do it. And this is the huge difference between the law and the gospel. The law (laughs) tells me what is right outside of myself and gives me no power. It just says, do it. Thou shalt not lie, okay? And then we get in a jam and we don't really want to face the truth and we're confronted with temptation and before you know it, we're lying our way out of it or trying to. <laughs> the law doesn't help. It tells me it's wrong, but it doesn't give me any, ben- it doesn't give me any benefit. It's just a standard out there. But the Holy Spirit, in the crux of the moment, in the crisis shows me what is right and then empowers me to follow through and do it regardless of the consequences. So, so then it boils down to simply do I want to or not? Not can I, but do I love the Lord and choose this? Because He is empowering me with his life and with his grace. Therefore, Paul says, the ones being led by the Spirit of God, these are children of God, because they're led by him. And the good news, and you've heard me say this many times before, but I, it just for those of you that have never heard it, maybe first time, just very simply, it is so much easier to live the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit guiding and directing from within than to try to memorize the Bible and obey every verse. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. I'm not saying you don't need the Bible. I thought about that as I was working on this message and I thought maybe I better better say that for another message. The Bible has a place, most certainly. But my daily living is not based on my memorization of all the rules. It's based on the fact that I have a living person inside of me, directing me in the path of righteousness, and I listen to him because I love him. And that is, and that is John's point. So this is how we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him, 1 John 2.6 ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So is the Holy Spirit of God in your life leading you, guiding you, directing you? Are you aware of his presence showing you the Christ-like character in any and every given situation? Now, if you turn over to 1 John chapter 3, just a couple of pages. 1 John chapter 3. Beginning in verse 4, 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him... 
There is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, that is the the seed of God, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, the key verse there is verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. If you happen to have the King James Version of the Bible or perhaps uh, some other translations, um, what it actually says, the literal translation from the Greek is, no one who is born of God sins. And one who is born of God cannot sin. Now, as soon as you read that, you're confronted with a dilemma. <laughs> because if you, if you have any self-awareness at all, uh, you're aware that even as God's child, you sin. Um, you know, who is perfect in this room? And so you have to look at the verse and say, well, wait a minute, that's contrary to all of my experience. What is John really saying to me? And the New International Version attempts to solve that for us by translating it a little different, saying, uh, no one who is born of God practices sin. Actually, and every time I, I... talk about the Greek language, and people always raise the question, well, is it possible to understand the English? Well, 99% of the time it is. But every once in a while, you need a little bit of background. And in Greek, there are two types of verbs. There's actually seven verb tenses, but there are two types of verbs. One of those types simply states the fact. It's like looking at a snapshot, just like a picture. It just states the fact. The other kind of verb expresses action going on in in a period of time. So one of them, uh, to use the words of the grammarian, is punctiliar. It's like a period, whereas the other is like a line which is drawn. The verbs that are in this passage are the linear, like the line. They express continuous action. Um, Years ago, before we came into the digital age totally, and when you watched a movie, uh, you know, you came to the theater. I guess that still happens in theaters. The big reels of, uh, of movie tape, you know, and it goes through the projector, and you're seeing it at 60 frames per second. I could use this illustration because people had Super 8 movies at home. That's uh, kind of like an 8-track player for those of you that can't remember or never even knew that such a thing existed. But, um, you know, you would have actually individual frames 
that would be running past the light and at 60 frames a second, you would see a motion picture. There was a big hubbub about 25 or 30 years ago that the theaters were putting subliminal suggestions in the movies to prompt you to buy Coke and popcorn or whatever at the concession stand by slipping in a frame, buy popcorn in this, you know, but it would go by so fast you wouldn't notice it. And the idea was that you would be motivated to uh, go, you wouldn't know that this was happening to you, but your subconscious was picking up that fleeting frame. You were just aware of the movie. That's a perfect illustration of what John is talking about here. Because what he's saying is, for the life of the Christian, if you look at the life, it's like watching that movie go by at 60 frames per second. If you freeze the action, you might land on a frame that involves sin. But if you look at the movie in motion the overall impression is one of Christ-like character. The point that John is making is that the person who has been born of God does not live a life that predominantly reflects sinful, rebellious behavior. Even though, on occasion, Christians fail. But the one who is living in Christ is the one who lives a life that is dominated by love for God and a desire to please Him and a passion after obedience toward Him. And that's what the impression is. That's kind of what you see. And so John is explaining to us that the Christian reflects the character of God. And he gives the reason for this. He says... Because his seed abides in him. You know, the older I get, and I've had opportunity even in, in this congregation now to observe three generations, and in some cases, four or more. Maybe five, Marge, I don't know. <laughs> but there, there's a string. I've had uh, the opportunity to observe multiple generations. I've also had the chance to observe my own family. And the apple really doesn't far fall from the tree. Doesn't fall far from the tree. (laughs) Sorry about that. The reason we bear likenesses to our families Our seed abides in our children. They reflect us in so many ways. They may have some different preferences in life. They may have different interests. Um, You know, but there are those nuances of behavior and whatever that just reflect us. Whether you like that or whether you don't, <laughs> you know, it's just there. You know, you may even have situations where some of the family members are the, quote, black sheep. They're just out in rebellion and others love the Lord. But there are still 
similarities of behavior. And John says it's no different in the spiritual life, in the Christian life. When the Holy Spirit of God has come into us and caused us to be born again, we have a new birth from Jesus Christ in which his character is reflected in our lives. His seed abides in us. And it motivates us toward holiness. And by holiness, I mean just obedience to God, just living a godly life. It moves us in that direction. If we do the self-examination test and we find no interest, whatever, really, in following God except, well, I don't want to go to hell. That's the only thing that bothers me is when, when I get to the end of doing it my way, I don't want to go to hell. I'm sorry. There is no evidence of new birth in that attitude. Why did you become a Christian? Well, I joined the church and got baptized because I didn't want to go to hell. Is that it? And you still feel like that? And you're still living like you used to live? You need to check it out. There's not... Someone put the question this way. If you were arrested and put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's a good question to ask. What evidence is there? Nothing's changed. I'm still the same old person. I do what I always did, except now I check in at church every once in a while and I pray to prayer back there somewhere. Need, you need to test yourself. Is there enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Because if you have been born again, there's a transformation. And that transformation out of love motivates us toward godliness. And when you look at the overall picture of the Christian's life, what you see is a reflection of Christ. There are changes. Now, I, I want to just really underscore this morning that this is a self-test. It's not one you can easily apply to other people. When you look back in your life, can you see a difference? I can look back in my life and I can see how God changed me. I can look back in my life and I can point to the areas where God dealt with me and my life was changed. Behaviors changed. And as time went along, I began to act differently. And after working on the outside, God began to work on the inside. I mean, there's evidence of the Spirit of God working in my life over time. Can you see that evidence that moves us toward godliness? But we need to be careful that we don't try to take the test for someone else. 
because other people may be struggling with other kinds of issues. And the Holy Spirit of God is dealing with them in, in his own time frame with them. And one of the things that really hangs people up is when they're fighting the battle with habitual sin. There are believers, many believers, who fight a battle with habitual sin. They're in bondage to some issue, sometimes more than one. And they struggle. They want to get over it. They want to live above it. They want to have freedom. But they find that they fail. And the cycle kind of looks like this. You know, here, here's the prayer the day after or the moment after. Oh God, I've done it again. I am so sorry. I, I, I really want to be free of this. I really want to get past this in my life. I, Lord, please forgive me. I, there is that kind of, an, of, of a responsiveness that's going on. And even in that situation, that person is reflecting the presence of the Spirit of God in their lives. Because when John says, and he cannot sin, no one who's born practices sin, and he cannot keep on sinning because he is born of God, the reason is, one of the most miserable people on the planet is a Christian who is losing the battle with sin, and the Holy Spirit is bringing that person under conviction, and there's this constant inner turmoil that is going on, because the Holy Spirit will not leave you alone until you come to the place of discovering the path of victory in that, in that issue. And that's a part of the sanctifying process. But I want to say that this morning because there are believers who are truly born again, who are fighting this battle. And it could be in a number of areas. And they're fighting this battle. And... Oftentimes, with the struggle, the enemy comes in and also accuses you of never having been saved. You, you've never been born again. You don't have eternal life because look at what you're doing. And, and you're struggling and you're miserable in the process and you're looking for solutions and you're pleading with God for victory. Why is that struggle going on if you don't care? In and of itself, it reflects that you have a heart toward God. And if you have committed your life to Jesus Christ and invited Him to be the Lord and, and the director of your life and you've turned this problem over to Him, then I want you to be encouraged this morning not to let the devil beat you up over the failure, but instead with renewed confidence come back to God and hang on to him until he shows you the path of victory. The, 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 the progress of sanctification in our lives is neither instant nor simple. And for every one of us, 
there is a history that's a little different. And our issues have roots in different places. And God works in those areas over many years. You know, I have been following Christ now for over 50 years, following him seriously for well over 40 years. And what I find happened in my life is that God dealt with the gross outward clutter first, and then he began to deal with some of the inner junk, and then he began to deal with attitudes, and then as time goes along, he keeps working down deeper and deeper and deeper in my life to make me look like Christ. And one of the things that I find sometimes is that what I'm fighting with today looks an awful lot like the thing I was struggling with 30 years ago. It's not manifesting itself the same way, but the underlying attitude is there. And the Holy Spirit of God is dealing with me on a deeper level. And he's working on me at a deeper level. And we have to give one another the grace to allow that to happen. That's why I can't, you know, I can't test Ron to see if he's in the faith. I, my spirit bears witness with his spirit, but I, I can't do the test for him. I have to do the test for me. What is the evidence that I, is God in my life? And is he motivating me toward godliness? And is that driven by my love for him? Close with a story. One of the uh, individuals in the 8 o'clock service, as they were going out the door, said to me, I remember this, I'm quoting her, I remember my last spanking. And I was crying and, and having you know, all of this reaction. And I had the thought, why am I crying so much? This doesn't really hurt that bad. And she said, I realized I was crying mainly because I had disappointed my dad. And we were having this confrontation because I had disobeyed him. And she said that was the last spanking I ever got. And I thought, that's a, that's a great insight and illustration. You know, what's really going on when you fail? Are you most distressed that you have disappointed your father, your heavenly father? Or are you more focused on the punishment? You know, where, where does it... The answer to that question sort of betrays your heart attitude toward God. I really don't want to let God down. Father, I pray this morning that you would open your word to us in a way that it would be appropriately applied in our lives. I pray that the enemy would be defeated by the word, that he would not compound guilt and despair, 
but that instead there would be an honest appraisal and a renewed love for you, Father. And Lord Jesus, for the price that you paid that I could have life, I'm so grateful. And I want to please you. And I pray, Lord, that if anyone looks inside and just doesn't relate to any of this and it doesn't connect and they're either indifferent or they're more worried about judgment than anything else, would you point them very clearly to Jesus Christ, the Savior? Grant them eyes to see and hearts of faith to believe that he has truly paid it all. Transform them by love. Give to them the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit and cause them to be born again to a living hope and to begin a journey with you that is not characterized by fear or indifference, but is characterized by ardent love for Jesus and a desire in every way to follow him. I ask it in his most special name. Amen.